hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one award-seeking comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark... Mark Hershaw. Yes, this is Mark Hershon, and this is Epi 96 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. If you missed it, there was an Epi 95.5, a little bit of a half episode, which I did from the road last week when I headed down to the third annual Los Angeles Podcast Festival. I was hoping to record this show as I was sitting in the Squarespace Podcast Lab surrounded by podcasters interviewing other podcasters, but the time got away from me and it seems there was always someone else to interview or to be interviewed by someone else for their show. So I'm actually recording Epi 96 here in Studio F behind the wheel of my Fiat in front of my house in the middle of the night, as usual. I will be featuring my own interviews with other podcasters from the PodFest over the next bunch of shows, but not on this episode. This show features my interview with Robert Campos and Donna Lo Cicero, the movie makers behind Three Still Standing, a documentary that looks at the San Francisco comedy scene back to the 1980s through the lives and careers of a trio of local comedians, Will Durst, Johnny Steele, and Larry Bubbles Brown. Here's a taste of what our conversation was like. We knew we had Act One is about the history of San Francisco comedy and, and what things were like in the heyday for these guys. And then we knew Act Two was about the challenges of today, mm-hmm. how how you know how they struggle, and we, we needed to illustrate that. We needed to follow them around day to day, whatever their gigs were, good and bad, yeah. to kind of figure out the challenges today. We um, we did interviews. We followed them around. We you know uh, we went. We had a really nice. This is just a very short scene in the film, but we went with Will and Debbie to their um, uh, storage container uh, out in you know, out in the sticks and they opened it up and they had all this zoo paraphernalia. From the Holy City Holy City Zoo, City zoo yeah. stuff. Um, they used to own the, the zoo. Yes, they took it over at one point when it was failing and they yeah. said, somebody's got to save this this icon. Yeah. yeah. So it was a really hot, bright day and the light was terrible and we we're struggling in there, but it was kind of lovely that they were just pulling out all this stuff and saying this is all comedy history. And yeah. I found one of the interesting things about Robert and Donna is that they're not from a comedy background, but they're real bona fide documentarians who've done hours of material for television. This is their first feature-length film, and they're coming at it as fans of comedy. I think you'll enjoy our chat. We do have several comedy podcast clips harvested by our associate producer, Tyson Saner. We also have a fresh burst of Durst from the aforementioned Will Durst, a classic Henderson's Pants commercial, and a look inside our tweet sack. Before we get to that, let me tell you about the upcoming changes coming up for our Succotash format. I talked about it a little bit in half episode 95.5, but maybe you missed that. After we hit Epi 100, the end of our first season, we're going to create two somewhat different shows that will still play sequentially in the Succotash pipeline. Two different flavors, if you will. Flavor 1 will be Succotash Clips, and will feature comedy podcast clips, along with a few bits of business, kind of what we normally do when we're not doing interviews. Flavor 2 will be Succotash Chats, and that will be an interview, or maybe a couple of short interviews wrapped up in one episode. We'll see what happens as we go. 
Why, I imagine you saying to yourself, well, sir, or ma'am, the shows have been featuring both, and I think you're getting shortchanged. When we blend the clips and the chats, you're getting less clips and long chats, and I just feel we become neither fish nor fowl, as it's looked at in the podcast game. The clip shows will run about a half an hour. The chat version will go as long as the interviews run. Capiche? But what do you think about this planned format change? I'd love to hear from you on the Succotash hotline at 818-921-7212 or read from you at mark, M-A-R-C, at succotashshow.com. I don't have a clip from last week's Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, but I was at their party cast the night before Podfest began. I'll clip a little bit of that for uh, the next show. And I was a guest on that show, so that's probably what you're going to hear, along with pretty much everyone else who was at Bottle Rock in downtown Los Angeles. So next episode should have a big old chunk of chill pack for you. I also had brunch the, on Sunday morning with Phil Lairness and Lily Holloman, along with Paige and JD from the Level 7 Access podcast, which was a whole lot of fun. Let's keep this epi rolling. It's time for... The 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Never fear, the stats are here. Here are the shows that have moved up or down the Stitcher's Top 100 Comedy Podcast List in the past week. At number 9, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour has moved 7 places up to once again pierce the top 10 on that list. At 24, What Say You? Up 10 spaces. At 35, Smodcast, Jay and Silent Bob Get Old, also up 10 places. At 36, Off the Air with Chuck McGee moving back up, this time 11 places. At 55, the Christopher Titus Podcast is down 9 places. At 70, Cashing In with T.J. Miller, up 9 places. At 78, The Dana Gould Hour, up 29 places. At 85, The Mick Betancourt Show is up 9 places. At 94, the Fernando and Greg's Daily Podcast, up 56 places. And I just reviewed uh, Fernando and Greg's Daily Podcast last week on This Week in Comedy Podcasts over on Splitsider.com and also on uh, the Huffington Post, so you can look for that there. And finally, at 95, You Talking You Two to Me is down 14 places. As I mentioned in Epi, 90, Epi, Epi, Epi 95, this feature might be on the chopping block as we work on tightening the format. But if you enjoy it and want to make sure we keep doing this feature, call me at the Succotash hotline, 818-921-7212, and let me know how you feel. The 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast list. Let's get into the several clips we have for this episode before getting to the interview with the makers of the Three Still Standing documentary. It's been about a year, but at long last, Mike and Tom Eat Snacks, also known as Mates, is back. Everyone, including themselves, thought that hosts Michael Ian Black and Tom Cavanaugh were dead. But they're, they're not. They're alive and snacking, and they celebrated their return with a snack as old as snacks themselves, the humble hard-boiled egg. Today's snack, ladies and gentlemen, is drum beat, please, Michael. That's what they did, by the way, on Everest. I you weren't at Everest. I didn't go. Right. In the travel agency. Today's snack, ladies and gentlemen, the comeback snack, the second half kickoff, is hard boiled eggs. Hard boiled eggs. Hard boiled eggs. What? No, no, no. I'm bleeding out. Stormtroopers hitting the ground. Hard-boiled eggs. eggs. You wouldn't have thought. Who would have thunk? 
Hard-boiled eggs. I mean, what? But what I like about this is, I'm going to take you back, Michael. Please. Come come take me back. Not, not to the time of woolly mammoth. Even before that. The dawn of man. Even before that. You know what you got up there? You got your... You know the flying birds? Yeah, the flying birds. The birds. Yeah. Those guys, you know what they were doing left, right, and center? Singing their songs. Laying eggs. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other dinosaurs, they're walking around, oh, oh, oh. And what do they want? Uh, 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 yeah. They uh, want to eat those eggs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're not deterred by the song singing of the... Because they're like, I don't give a shit about that. I want to eat the eggs. And right. these... Michael, back then, those eggs, those eggs were big... Chunker eggs the size of a football. Big eggs. Like old school eggs, you know. And back then, every animal wanted to eat those eggs. And that is like, that's 400, 500 years ago. Oh, easily. Flash forward to now, and what are folks still eating? Oh, eggs. <laughs> yeah, eggs, yeah, yeah, eggs, 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 eggs. I missed that dull look in your eye when I asked well, you Well, yeah, I thought to myself... There's a lot of stuff people Pizza. are eating. Yeah, a million yeah, things. It's, it's a million but then, but then I backtracked yeah. mentally. I was like, well, yeah. what was he just talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah, and then, yeah. then I thought, oh, dinosaurs. I'm yeah, like, no, he doesn't no, eat dinosaurs. Not eating dinosaurs these days. No, what are people still eating? Yeah, and then yeah. I got to, and then I very quickly got to eggs. And then yeah, you did. It was actually, if you were playing back, it was about like a, a slight four seconds. And so people are still eating eggs. And these ones, I tossed into the hot water, boiling water. Next thing you know, I got myself some hard-boiled eggs. It's, it couldn't be simpler. You get, grab a bunch of eggs, throw them in some steaming hot boiling water, and now you have hard-boiled eggs. You can take them with you once they cool down. You know, you can, well, you can put eat them, them in a lunch. You could eat them warm. You could eat them room temp. You could eat them cold. Yeah. That's the thing about a hard-boiled egg. It's very practical, and it's also uh, it's a durable snack. It, it is. You can, put, you can pack that in your lunch. You can put it in a thing. Listen to this. That's not my head. <laughs> ah, sometimes I wonder. Yeah, I wonder. Sometimes That's sometimes the egg. You hear that? Ah. <laughs> well, what I'm holding in my hand right now is your classic white hard-boiled egg. This Whoa. isn't. This isn't a brown egg. This isn't. Uh, this isn't an Easter egg. This is your classic, just white chicken's egg. White chicken's egg. And uh, this came right out of a out of a chicken. You assume. I mean, we assume. We assume. We, yeah. There's no like guarantee that it did. We assume it did. It looks like a chicken's egg. And this isn't, I wouldn't say this is even a jumbo egg. This is probably uh, maybe a large, at it, most a large egg. It, yeah. Uh, I happen to know that it's not jumbo. It's a large egg. At most, it's a large egg. Maybe even a sort of medium to large egg. egg. It's got a lot of condensation on it because it's been in the fridge, so it's cold. Yeah, yeah, because I boiled them up, then I waited for you. And uh, it's got it's got water on it there. And as you heard... Walter. You heard from... Uh, from from Tom over there, hard boiled, hard boiled. Tom's taking a selfie of us posing with the eggs. Because in the new age, we're gonna take a picture or two for the mateys. You know, right, so, you know why? What's the definition of patience? Uh, people who are sick and need to see a doctor. Yes. So on this one, we have the hard boiled egg. Yep. Yep. Go on. You're, I feel like I interrupted you mid thought. No, I'm I'm about to crack mine. Now, one of the one of the most satisfying things is sometimes someone gives you a PB and J. What do you do? You eat it. Sure. You know, you don't have like a little ceremonial beginning to the eating of the meal. Some foods do have that ceremonial beginning, which is fun. I don't can't think of a better ceremonial beginning than the and it's not even ceremonial when I think about it. It's practical. You got to open the fucker up. You know what I'm saying? You're saying you got to open the fucker up. That's right. So you know what I'm saying. And so with this one, you crack it. 
You have to crack it. You have to peel the hard outer shell out. This is for the people that have never had a hard-boiled egg. And then you take the, so- the soft interior and you eat that. Right. Good old Mike and Tom eat snacks. Good to have them back. And you can find them at Nerdist.com. Also on iTunes, Stitcher, you know, the usual suspects when it comes to providing you with podcasts. I dropped a mention of the podcast We Have Concerns a couple of months ago in the This Week in Comedy podcast column up on Splitsider.com, but we hadn't yet played a clip. Jeff Kanata and Anthony Carboni have a lot of fun delving into the wonder and dread hidden inside seemingly innocuous things. For instance, this clip is from their recent episode, Algorithm is a Dancer. So check this out. Music, the food of the soul. Mm-hmm. It might not be uh, completely human creativity. Well, at least this article that I've come across seems to indicate that there may be an algorithm that can figure it out. This guy, Dr. Leor Shamir. Figure, figure what out? What makes music pleasing, palatable, good, popular? It's kind of him trying to decipher pop music. It didn't really start that way, mm-hmm. but it turned into that thing. It actually started with him trying to understand whales communication because they have this musical way of communicating. Right. And he, um, I know because I, I go to sleep to the song of the whales every night. I got a song of the whales CD and a candle that smells like fresh laundry <laughs> and a two pack at the Hallmark store. That does sound peaceful. And my, my stars has ever put me right out. <laughs> well, this guy plugged the entire Beatles oeuvre mm-hmm. into his computer and he went beep, boop, 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 boop. And out popped uh, this algorithm that allowed him to analyze the music to the point where he, it, it would be able to predict the order in which these songs were written. And Interesting. Yeah, so it, it can really map the evolution of their skill level, their trajectory as a band, their progression. In fact, it got so accurate that it said that Abbey Road was written after Let It Be, even though Let It Be actually came out after Abbey Road. But it's correct that right. most of the songs on Abbey Road were written after Let It Be. That's cool. Pretty neat, right? Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like what it's doing is it's taking every song and then looking for just patterns yep. and then looking for the evolution of a particular pattern. Exactly. So I got a question how this is going to predict the perfect pop song or what's going to be hot in music next. There have been a couple projects that have tried to do this before and have kind of like come up with the perfect structure for a pop song. And Right. Well, I think this is the idea that they're seeing the potential for. He says, uh, it has the makings of a great music discovery tool. It could really help make the difference between discovery of artists for different people. There could be some great musicians out there that you would really like, but whose work you'd never be exposed to before. So it's kind of like what Pandora is trying to do, Uh but I think on a more mathematical level, it's actually analyzing song structure and taking the human beings out of it. And and instead of saying, well, if you like that, you probably like this because I know because I'm a guy who likes music, the computer is looking at that structure and going, here's something that is aesthetically pleasing in one sense, perhaps in another sense, it will be similar. Sure. But I think what they're not taking into account in that case is there may be five or six different bands in a particular movement or genre who sound pretty similar, Mm -hmm. right? What happens is, you know, a band comes out and they're very popular and then all these A&R guys from record companies run to find the next X, right? 
right? Yeah. And they all we, sound very similar to one another. Right. But just because they sound musically similar to one another does not mean that we I'm going to like them. We want our Mumford and Sons, so enter Lumineers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah. They're either indecipherable from one another, so it doesn't matter, so you don't care about either of them, or there is that little difference, and it's not a mathematical difference. It's an emotional difference. It's stylistic difference right. that separates that one band. You may not like all metal, but you may like one metal band for one particular reason. Right. And so I think the algorithm is probably good in terms of you could take everything that's on the radio now that's very popular, everything over the last three years, and put them in chronological order and tell the algorithm, all right, this is what the nation's music choice is. Right. This is what our music taste is. What's the next thing? What's the thing that's not so different it's going to scare people, but is different enough that it's going to seem new and fresh? Right. And that's what executives have been doing for decades mm -hmm. in trying to predict it. It's just when you break it down to a algorithm, I feel like it, it sounds so much harsher and detached from humanity. And it is, but it might work. It might. People want the data that's going to make them healthier. People want the data that's going to make them more productive. People want the data that is going to make their community safer, their schools better. That's all stuff they want. The data that we don't want is the data that tells us that we are computers, even though we are. Their home site is wehaveconcerns.com, and you can find the show in all the other usual podcast haunts. Now, I can't believe that comedian Dom Irera is almost 100 episodes into his podcast, Dom Irera Live from the Laugh Factory, and we have never featured a clip from his show before, which is just odd because I'm actually kind of friends with Dom. I haven't seen him in a while, but we know each other. But thanks to Tyson Saner, we're going to play one now. Dom does his show interviewing comedians and talking about Hollywood biz right there in Hollywood from the Laugh Factory Comedy Club. Here's a recent episode where Dom is talking to comedian John Heffron. See, this is only the second time you've been on stage here. I've been in Laugh Factory. I've done... Uh, May I welcome you? May I welcome oh, you yeah, to, to the improv <laughs> I did one set here. Maybe, maybe two max. Um, went up after Dane Cook. Um, and the other one, I think it was like, you know... How, long did, how long did Dane do? He didn't do that. Maybe he was up there for like 20 minutes. Really? Cause, yeah, because I heard like, oh man, here we go. You know? Yeah. And then he was up for 20 minutes and then it, it was a great show. And then I think right when I first moved to Los Angeles, I had like a, oh, you know what? I know where I also auditioned here for American Idol the first season when they had, when uh, Dunkelman had it. I had a bunch of auditions. Oh, the I guy, Dunkelman's the guy who quit? Yeah, I made it kind of far in that. This was however many years ago. But a lot of that was done actually in here. He's the one who quit. He was like Ryan Seacrest's yeah. partner. And then Ryan Seacrest kind of uh, strong-armed him out and did some oh, did shady really? stuff just so it was all Ryan Seacrest. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Because yeah. I remember I did a radio show upstairs and uh, he told me about it, you know, because he seemed like he had a lot of regrets about quitting. Not knowing. I think the, you, I, I, yeah, I can't even speak for him, but if, if. Yeah, you can. I remember, you know, it was Dunkelman, who's super funny, super great guy. Seacrest and Seacrest just, you know, kind of knew how to manipulate the system right. more and just start knowing how to steal lines and try to, you know, get like, you know, in that situation, you have to figure out how am I going to be the breakout star? Because I don't think Seacrest was, I mean, he had a radio show, did afternoons back then, but that was it, you know? So, so you were on American Idol? 
No, I was auditioning oh, for oh, okay. the other spot, and we had to come here. A oh, lot. you were auditioning to host, not yeah, to be on the show. Yeah, we had to come show. to the Laugh Factory a lot. So you're the, not a singer. Yeah, no, no. Just, just so you were on. Uh, was the I was one? on. I was, and then shortly after, I did make it onto a reality reality show. Last Comic uh, which Standing, which would be Last Comic Standing. And when I was on uh, and won Last Comic Standing, it was more of a reality show. Because it, it was it was ten years ago when I was on. Was this with Tammy and all that? Tammy Pescatelli, Alonzo Bowden, Kathleen Madigan, Todd Glass, Bonnie McFarlane, uh, Corey Holcomb, Ant, and that was it. And did you guys have to live in a house? We together? had to live in a house. You know, I remember being offered the possibility of that, and I was afraid to live in the house. Yeah, they did. Uh, living in the house was, was interesting, but like now, all the last comics now, there's none of the house stuff. Um, well, now know, they're all like. All you know, older than, I mean, now they're like fifty-year-olds. Last comic standing. Yeah, I mean, this season had Schubert and you know Rocky Laporte. I I I've always thought like that's a way funnier show than what they did earlier seasons. When like after my season, after season two or three, they were going after new guys. Then then they went, and I remember seeing a casting thing where they wanted young, good-looking comics. Or whatever to kind of that leaves me out. Yeah, <laughs> and th then they, um, you know, so they start casting those guys. But you know, not, now you're getting guys that have six minutes of material yeah, yeah. that are are mediocre hosts at best. Was that the that fan era? That fan was the very first. Oh, was he? Yeah, nice kid, super nice. He, he gets a that gets a lot of bad rap from comics. I, I think it's unjustified. He was a kid. He, he, not a kid. He was a guy who auditioned for a show and they never booted him off the show and he won it. Like at what point, you know, there's not a single comic that would be in his situation that would go, you know what guys, I don't really deserve this. Let's give it to Rich Voss, somebody who's been around and it's right, funny. Right. I, so pe people like to like yeah. crap on him. Um, when, uh, he had as, as as much experience doing his last comic and winning it as Amy Schumer did when she was on her last comic. But oh, she wanted to? No, she didn't win it. She, she she was in like you know, but but she was new. I think even Eliza was new. Like they, like that's the thing. So you yeah, can yeah. be new on last comic and then go on to to do great things. Well, I work with that fan in San Francisco, and I have never drawn so many Cambodians and Laotians. Yeah, it's good. But it was really fun. He was. He was a great kid. He he did twenty five minutes, and he he really packed the place. And I I had somewhat of a draw, but it was really him. And I, it was such an odd thing, you know. And then he said, "Thanks a lot for doing the show with me because I can't do more than twenty five. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, know. So I did. I did thirty because <laughs> I killed. Yeah. So now now they have the you know more seasoned comics, which I think in the long run is better for everybody because. Uh, well, they're going to get a better show. Dom Irera, live from the Laugh Factory, is housed at thelaughfactory.libson.com and is also available wherever fine podcasts can be streamed or downloaded. It's almost time to jump into my interview with Robert Campos and Donalo Cicero, the brains behind the upcoming comedy documentary, Three Still Standing. But before we get there... Here's this word from our sponsor. Friends, it's no secret that at Henderson's Pants, we don't like to see anyone go without a snappy pair of trousers. From working stiffs on the factory floor to high-powered honchos in their penthouse offices, Henderson's has been cradling their buttocks every step of the way. 
But what about the fop, the dandy, that urbane gent about town preoccupied with little else than his manners and his clothing? It doesn't matter that a feat snobbery went out well over 50 years ago. When the fops went out the door, Henderson's pants went with them, and we've stayed with them too. You generally won't find Henderson's fancy pants for fops on a casual shopping spree, but if you're a pretentious popinjay, just give your local Henderson's pants salesperson that snide smirk you've got down to a science, and you'll be shown into our private fitting area in no time flat. You'll be seated comfortably with a brandy in hand and a snoot full of snuff, watching a parade of the latest fancy pants parade right by you. With any luck at all, you'll favor us with a fitting, and although we never dare hope to be so lucky, you might even leave the premises with a fresh pair, <laughs> dare we say two, of Henderson's fancy pants for fops under your arm. Originally designed for syphilitic poets, renaissance painters, and Beau Brummel, we'd ask you to tell your friends, but we know that you don't actually have any. Fancy pants for fops from Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1491. Now back to Succotash. Uh, thank you, Bill Haywatt. Hey, it's Christine Blackburn with a story-worthy podcast saying you're listening to Succotash with Mark Hershon. Mm, Mark Hershon. It is officially Tweet Sack time. Hello, Tweety. Uh, we've got a few things kicking around in the old sack, I think. Got a note from friend of Succotash, Davy and Dent, from the Bitter Sound and Strange Times podcasts. He wanted to know if I had a 30-second spot or commercial for Succotash and that he would like to share that on his Bitter Sound show. It's a great idea. Thanks, D- Davy, and I, I will get around to that soon. I, I, I promise. I've been trying to do it for the last two years, but I'll do it promise. Uh, This wasn't in the tweet sack, but actually in the real world. Thanks to Brandy and Travis Clark of the Tiny Odd Conversations podcast. I met up with them when I was in LA for the PodFest, and they picked up breakfast. Man, I love when podcasters have jobs. (laughs) All right, now here's the list of kind folks who have tweeted, retweeted, favorited, followed, DM'd, or somehow mentioned at Succotash Show on Twitter this past week. Eat KS, Dead as Hell, Jacqueline Rivas, Stones, DK Ryan, DAPF Pod Animals, Promos for All, Promote Horror, Conrad and Jack, Instagrants 2, DAPF Pod Neil, Schmuckman Zero, Eric of Foon, Samantha Pet, Peaches and Hot Sauce, Raphael Nowak, Funny Looking, Virginia JC Mock, Tuesday Night Pod, Speechless, Salty Language Podcast, Amish Baby Machine, Kenny D. Eichenberg, Tony High, The Three Cuckoos Podcast, Trevin Ben, The Geek Generation, Ridiculous Ramblings, Hillbilly Nerd Talk, J.F. Harris, Churn666, The Pod Mafia, Bon and Oboe, Benjamin DeHaven, Shane Elliott, Jeffrey Welchman, Scott the Bat Nash, Hassie P., Larry McCullum, State of Grey, Andrew McGiver, SBFGS Podcast, Corey Epps, Corporate Profit, Chris Bono, Jason Duplissy, Nerdy Minds Magazine, Brit and American, Houston News, Illusionoid, The Sibling Rivalry, Bob Zaney, Bob Mosier, Level 7 Access, Lily Holloman, Tom Jackson Jr., Wicked Branches, Gabriel Diani, Solid Cat Podcast, Nug Nargang, Julie Augustino, 
Greg Proops, Joseph Rich, Rick Overton, Janet Varney, Rob Logan, Podcast Whore, Talk Rubbish Podcast, and Jessica Causa. That's it for the Tweet Sack this episode. If you mention Succotash Show in your tweet or tweet to us directly with your questions, comments, and suggestions for comedy podcasts for us to feature on the show, I'll read them back here on the show. I also read emails in the Tweet Sack section too, so you can send along notes, clips, and pics to Mark, M-A-R-C, at SuccotashShow.com. Without further ado, here's my chat with filmmakers Robert Campos and Donna Lo Cicero, the powers behind the three still standing documentary. Uh, I am uh, sitting uh, comfortably, I might add, in the home of Robert Robert Camp. You guys can talk; it's okay. Uh, Robert Campos <laughs> and Donna Lo Cicero. Lo Cicero. Lo Cicero. Damn it! I can never. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'll get it. I'll get it by October. You know, in, in, in Sicily, it's lo chichero. If you lo chichero. Really... So that, that can really goof you up. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I have. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Um, and welcome to Succotash. Uh, I have uh, teased to my listeners that I would be speaking with you before so very long. Uh, these are the filmmakers behind the three still standing documentary. Um, a film that I'm going to let them talk about, but just uh, briefly to recap for my listeners, is uh, looks at the comedy scene in San Francisco starting back in the uh, early 1980s and follows it through the course of the career of three comedians who um, they've basically been in San Francisco most of that time. Most of that time. Uh, they have touched stardom. Except for one weekend, I think. I think they left. <laughs> Except for one weekend. Back in 86. <laughs> It was in Vegas, and it, it didn't work out. Uh, one, of, one of those comics uh, my listeners are very familiar with, Will Durst, who provides us with our Burst O' Durst segment every week. Uh, Larry Bubbles Brown, who has been on the show as a guest a couple of times. And Johnny Steele, who is still a mystery. <laughs> the mystery man, really? Johnny Steele really? is a mystery. To my listeners. To yes. the listeners. Yes, he is. Oh, so and far. I, and yeah. I was joking about them not leaving. They do. Will travels all over. They all travel around but but they do. this is the mainstay i guess they are so well identified with san francisco and and the kind of comedy here so that's why i, I think san francisco is home base yeah very much home base yeah. and then i think I, what differentiates them from a lot of other comedians is that they they really chose to make this instead of la or new york a home base and that that affected their whole careers and you know for better or worse so you guys uh, came up with this uh, this concept to do this documentary. We'll talk a little bit more about how you got into it. But um, first of all, for those of you who are who've heard me talk about it before, who are interested in seeing the documentary, uh, it's going to be coming out uh, very soon, making its premiere at the Mill Valley Film Festival. And we will talk more right. towards the end of the interview, right. just to make people keep listening about okay. when that's coming out. <laughs> oh, so we don't talk about when it's coming out yet. Oh, we can. We could. But let's we talk do. about it at the end. Okay. That way they'll be listening. All see, right. they'll keep li- when, when can we see this? When can we see this? He really knows Nobody how knows. to rope you in, doesn't he? You're in. You're in. <laughs> um, but let's find out a little bit more about you two before we begin. Okay. Um, you have been producing documentary films now, uh, both for television, and, actually mostly for TV. Mostly TV. Right? Mostly TV. This is our first independent feature. Yeah, everything yeah. else has been for TV. Really. Yeah, TV uh, magazine shows, uh, or TV, just home viewing. 
documentaries. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen any of those. No, no, you never will. Interesting. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm sure, my, I'm sure my listeners would like to see some of that on our website. <laughs> Tune in to the, the Beanfield channel. <laughs> no, what is that? What, what you just hold doing it. I go, okay, that's, that's. I don't a, think you we want haven't to, revealed that line much. of work. I don't, think you, I don't think you want to ask about um, that. Or apparently, I guess not. No, we're not ready to. Just like the the, the premiere of the film, we're not ready to talk about. It. That's right. But anyway, you you guys um, started uh, producing documentary uh, material for television, and uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are somewhat familiar with some, if not all, of the stuff you guys have done as we talk about it dun, here. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yes, uh, you've uh, you've produced a number of things for. <laughs> The infamous Shark Week, which is, how long has Shark Week been going on now? 26, 7, 27 I think this was tw- season 27. Wow. I think so, yeah. yeah. Lost track. That's, and that's kind of amazing, isn't that it? That is amazing yeah. to think about. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's become a thing, right? I mean, socially in America, Shark Week is a thing. It's it is a huge it's, thing. It's yeah. like a, um, it, it, it's like it, it plays with itself, right? Shark Week, it, it's, it's a... I mean, they, they have fun with it. They yes. make fun of the fact that they show this blood and gore. And and uh, lo and behold, people have gotten very interested. And in, I mean, marine biologists have been sort of inspired by, you know, to become marine. Kids have been uh, inspired to become marine biologists through Shark Week, which is counterintuitive. But so it, a lot of marine biologists, they, they roll their eyes and they go, oh, God, <laughs> Shark Week. But they also see that there's a lot of value in it. Okay. You know. So I imagine you guys must be big time scuba divers and stuff, right? Which is what got you interested in, in sharks and no. Actually, it was no. kind of a kind of an odd <laughs> route. Yeah, we, we had done something. Uh, we had done some reenactments, which you know we come from more of a journalism background. So reenactments were anathema at one time, and we mm. thought, oh, we don't do reenactments. That's, it's not pure journalism. That's, just, you know, that's yeah. really cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> and we got this job where we were reenacting some scenes from some headline stories, uh, stories like Elian Gonzalez and stuff like that. And we, and we, we did some reenactments from uh, Katrina, oh. where uh, uh, we, a house was flooding. And what we did was we put uh, instant coffee in a swimming pool <laughs> and made a little set like a kitchen and lowered it into the swimming pool. Really? So it looks like the water is rising. It, it looks, looks like, like muddy flood. water because yeah, of the coffee rising. grounds. Yeah. And how was the coffee? Coffee wasn't <laughs> bad. It was Cuban. Uh, <laughs> was that sort of chicory coffee they have down in no. New Orleans? I mean, were you going for authenticity with the coffee? No, we just needed brown water, Mark. Oh, it wasn't okay. really. Okay. Right. I, don't know. I don't know your method. It's a swimming so pool <laughs> full of coffee. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, we had we started having fun with it. We, we thought, wow, this is actually kind of a kick. It's like making little movies. Yeah. And you're making documentaries where you can mix it. This is, you know, this is regular, serious, fly-on-the-wall documentary, but when you're talking about something in the past, you can create it in an artful way, and we could yeah. play with that. Okay. So, so we did that, and then uh, we were asked, well, you know, you did that that um, uh, reenactment, and you've also done a bunch of... We'd, done a lot of science documentary work and so Discovery asked us to bring that whole package of stuff to a shark show. Okay. Which we thought, well that's a challenge. We haven't done a shark show before. Not realizing that it means spending many, many hours out on a blazing beach, getting really <laughs> sandy and all the gear gets dirty and Or you're and, out on a boat. 
you know. It's... And did you encounter real sharks while making any of these documentaries? Or we yeah. had, yeah, yeah. We've actually, what, we've um... we've gone out with uh, scientists in uh, uh, Sydney, in Sydney Harbor, as they were tagging sharks. They were Sydney Harbor had a real problem with bull sharks. Okay. Uh, they had had some attacks, and they were trying to kind of uh, assess what what the what the uh, what the problem was in Sydney Harbor, and they and so they started tagging sharks, and going out, and they have a lot of sharks, not a lot of attacks compared to the number of sharks there, but yeah. Yeah, so they, they were that. tagging them and trying to figure out what what time of year they came back and what was bringing them back into the harbor there, and we actually had a shark show up. At one of our reenactments, we were actually <laughs> yeah. reenacting. He was so interested in <laughs> yeah. what was going on. I thought yeah. you'd be serving well, coffee. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Is there but French you know, toast here? You know, you're splashing around in the water. You sound like a, sh a, a, sh a fish in trouble. Okay. So. The shark came. That's by. what they come after: is fish in trouble. They. Yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah How often yeah. do fish get in trouble? Well, you know, if you have if you're a, a seal and you're having a rough time, and maybe your flipper's not working. Okay, and the shark goes dinner time. They they are the shark gets curious. Yeah. And they're like big dogs. Okay. Yeah. And they're scavengers. If if there's a you know they'll pick off the the weak member of the oh wow okay. the whole pod. Uh, so yeah, they they will show up, and they're you know it's amazing how they really are everywhere. I mean, sharks are in trouble worldwide. You know, in in this, the oceans across the world. They are in, in tremendous decrease, and, and that's a very serious issue. But by the same token, it's amazing how often they are there. You know, you're, you're swimming, and they're yeah. around. And they don't attack people. They, they just, every now and then, there's a mistake. Uh, you know, and, oops. And they let go. You know, yeah. unfortunately for you and me, that means, yeah. ouch, that's a, you know, a terrible An thing. arm or a leg. Yeah. yeah. But, we worked with a shark wrangler in the Bahamas, and that was pretty interesting. Oh, wow, okay. This guy, this, this is what he does for a living, is wrangles. he wrangles sharks and gets them to act <laughs> for camera. Stuart Cove, famous Stuart Cove. Which shark is funny because it's the reverse of the Hollywood paradigm, which is run by sharks who try and get <laughs> actors to act. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stuart Cove actually was scalped once by a, a bull shark that he was wrangling, but uh, wow. he's still at it, and... You know, scalped like yeah. like a yeah. big chunk of his head came Took off. His, yeah. grabbed at his hair and ripped his scalp off. Yikes! And yet yeah. he, he seems he's still fine. back he's... in the water playing with the sharks. Ah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you you've uh, you've seen some interesting folk. We didn't see the scalping. No, no, but I mean, <laughs> no, okay. but you, you, you've met some interesting yes. folk. Yes, have, but, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what got you out of the water and uh, onto dry land, dealing with a whole another species of shark, the stand-up comedian? Jeez, yeah, that's a big leap, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. We, uh, you know, we moved back to San Francisco. We've been living in Miami for a while. And we were really, we, we loved that scene separately. We weren't, we weren't together at the time, but we loved the 80s comedy scene. Mm -hmm. There's just something about it. I mean, I think, you know, people can talk a lot about this. And if you really look at, you know, comedy and its evolutions, there was a, a ton going on in the 60s and in the 70s. It was explosive. But... For us, anyway, you know, at the age we were at, the, the 80s. 80s were great. They were just uh, It was the most fun abundant. you could have going out at night was to go to a comedy club. And I had a good friend who managed the punchline, Rick Bates. Rick Bates, yes. I know so, Rick very yeah. well. So I would go in and see him and, and catch whatever comedy was going on that night. And it was becoming more commercial. It wasn't the uh, down the side street in the coffee shop with a handful of people. It was becoming more, 
Mainstream. Mainstream, somewhat yeah. more mainstream. And you know when something's heading in that direction that it's going to die. But, but, <laughs> but we didn't feel that at the time. We, felt, we just felt this energy about right. it. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of energy in those clubs. You walked in and you didn't know what was going to happen that night or who was going to show up. It just felt like this is, this is the place to be. So we wanted to do something about that. We just thought, let's do something about that because it has a lot of energy for us. Um, and, and there's that, that whole mystique of the comedian and what they do and how they create them, you know, what, the, what they're it's giving a, to. I think it was, it's an interesting time to do it because the people that were our age then in those clubs will have an appreciation for a movie that looks back at that. And there's kind of a new, at least here in San Francisco, and I think it's happening other, there, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a kind of a resurgence now. You know, there was a big dip in live stand-up, and it's coming back. There's a lot of open mics. There's a lot of young comics trying to get work. Uh, and so I think for them to have a historical reference to what it was like, because it's different than it was in the 80s. There's, a, there's some similarities, but there's a lot of stuff that isn't around anymore that gave young stand-ups a chance. So I think that historical reference, I think it will draw two potentially fairly large audiences that are interested in what's going on, you know. Uh, the people like like you that had the interest in comedy and love going to clubs. And then this new group that mostly has been weaned on television, on TV. You know, they've seen all the Comedy Central specials and everything out, and now they're finally getting a chance to go out to clubs. It's sort of the reverse paradigm of what happened in the 80s. It's like a, a, a local like the local food movement, you know? Yes. Like yeah. the local comedy movement. Yeah. Laugh, cool. laugh locally. Yeah. <laughs> cool. and, and I think they're getting to appreciate uh, uh, live stand-up mm-hmm. as opposed to, they, they grew up stand-up. just seeing it <laughs> nah, um, on TV, right? Yeah. It's a totally different thing. It is different. The energy's totally different. It's a totally different dynamic in a lot of different ways. So you, so you have this, this sort of history, mutually shared history, uh, looking back on it, um, so where did you decide? How do you decide where to start the tale from? Yeah, that was, you know, honestly, that was a struggle. I mean, we we um, we met Will. You mean after we interviewed everybody? I you tell me. I mean, was that part of the process? Was it? Let's talk to everybody. Can I get more wine? This is your house. You tell me. Yeah, go for it. No, I'm fine. We started by talking to everybody. We started there. I think we talked to Bob Sarlat first. Yeah, we talked to Bob we Sarlat. We just sat in a coffee shop with him and talked about the scene. We went to uh, Holly's, which is a really short-lived comedy club on Van Ness. Yes, that was And a uh, Ill, David Ill. Feldman was headlining that night. Mark Pitta was there. And you knew David Feldman. David from before. Yeah, he worked at KRON back in the 80s. He was a receptionist who would come around our desks at 5 o'clock every afternoon and, and say, hey, Robert, is this funny? And, and uh, our good friend Tim Didion, who's been a, a story consultant on this uh, project and, and super helpful in it, would always say, that's not funny, Dave. That's not Because <laughs> we were all on deadline, you know. Sure, <laughs> and the last thing you wanted to hear was... Uh, that was his moment to ask you, is this funny? Um he was there. Mark Pitta was there. Um, a handful of folks were there. So we kind of moved Bolt around. Jeff Bolt was there. Oh, Jeff Bolt was there. Yeah. 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 Um, so we talked to people there. We talked to. We had talked to Will. We talked to Johnny. We met Larry. I think Tim had known Larry and said, "This is an odd beast. We got." <laughs> We gotta get get inside one of, his one of the, head. One of the kindest things ever said of Larry Brown. <laughs> this is an odd beast. 
but heard. but it was that night in Holly's where we were talking to David Feldman and and Holly, yeah, and, kinda, Holly. and got an inkling that the business model had changed, hmm. and that was that was the first time we started saying, oh, maybe there's something to say about what the scene is today. It's not just a Valentine to the past. It's not just all about the past. Maybe there's something that's even more interesting, more you know, intriguing that was drawing us into what was going on today. Because right, right. Because there was a sense that Holly's was going to have a hard time surviving and other clubs weren't necessarily going to showcase a comic who performed at Holly's. Right. So David had come up from L.A. and it just felt like, wow, you know, back in the 80s, uh, the other cafe or you know clubs all over the all over town could have a, a, a comedy night or you know comedy every night of the week and there was enough to go around but today it seemed like really the business wasn't there it was that that intimate room with a live comedy show is sort of a fanciful notion ah shucks that's you know that's really that's really cute, but you know, these days we need a big arena with a thousand people paying twenty bucks and buying two drinks apiece to make this thing pay off financially. Yeah, or it's a it's you know a corporate entity like the Punchline has become, or Cobbs has become, both under mm-hmm. the same umbrella now, where they bring in these headliners that are you know pretty much guaranteed to get butts and seats, and there may not even be indicative of the comedy spirit that San Francisco was known for. Right. There are always outside guys that come in because they're going to draw a particular crowd that's going to spend money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So David Feldman was the first <clears throat> one who said to us, yeah, comedy is corporate now. Yeah. 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 And that. And so you found three that guys that are sort of the antithesis of corporate, except, I mean, both Will and Johnny do corporate gigs. Yeah. Um, you know, not maybe not at the high end of the spectrum, but they're both they both work it. They do. I, you know, and I don't know if, if uh, television had come along and told either of those guys, we're going to give you your own show. I don't know if they would have said, yeah, you know, I'll take it, I'll do it and become something else. But that didn't happen. And they did remain as these club comics who, you know, have acquired over the, over the course of the years a real mastery of that club. Yeah. And of that, you know, you have 70, 100 people sitting in a club enjoying the show and you've got this sort of master up there working it. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, a special thing, which Good. we're trying to get at in this film. You know, it's something we didn't realize when we, until we had the film put together is how much, how much better these guys have gotten over time. Mm. You know, yeah. putting it together, we kind of finally went, wow, look at, look at them back then and look sure. at them now. They're masterful now, you know, all of them. Yeah. All of them. And it's interesting to think back because I've known these guys since all of them started, really, um, and wonder if there was a sort of deciding moment when they could have stepped ahead and decided not to, or that decision was made for them. I mean, when I had Larry on the show and interviewed him, he's sure that he had a chance to go to Los Angeles and he chose not to take it. Yeah. And I said, is there any, any, anything you regret in your career? And he said, that was that was it. The fact I didn't go to LA when the opportunity presented itself. 
He said, I really think something could have happened. And that was uncertain to him what that would have been. Get parts in movies, get on television more. He didn't know. It could have been nothing. It could have could been, have been nothing, everything. But he felt like that, that was yeah. a time. Um, there's the fairly classic story of, you know, Will Durst going back to do the Letterman show and not doing the set that they approved. And the set that he chose to do didn't do very well. Well, now, Will, Will you know, we did, we did a lot of interviews with Will. And sure. he'll say that he uh, ran this by the producer of that show, but he wasn't focused on that at the moment. Okay. Um, but who knows now what the I, truth you know, may have I, been. And I think maybe Will will we'll tolerate us saying something like this because <laughs> I, I look at that tape and there's something that happens in, in Will that whether he actually felt this or thought this or, or whether it was, you know, some other part of Will making a decision not to succeed on that show like right. he could have because Will, you know, we've seen he's impeccable. He can yes. nail it pretty much whenever he wants, you know, at yeah. will. But he, that night, something happened that was a bit odd and different, and, and he's a little bit angry up there and mm -hmm. not having a good time. And I don't know, I, was there a part of Will that said, this isn't for me? I don't Maybe know. Maybe so. I, I mean, there's, you know, I've, I've known a lot of comics in this business. A lot of them have a weird sort of self-defeating element to themselves that when they get a chance, mm -hmm. they can sometimes torpedo themselves for whatever reason sure. who knows why they're or is scared it, or is everybody it, but is it self-defeating or is it self-preserving well i mean look what happens okay yeah. so you can be in l you know or wherever la or wherever you know it's not we're not going to want to blame la for all you know this stuff but well, we can blame la all right let's blame <laughs> screw la god damn la but but uh, i think you know your life changes you're you're yes. not going to become you're not going to be the comic that you are doing those clubs in San Francisco, you know that. Yeah. You know you're going to be doing Fast commercials. Food commercials. Or, yeah, yeah, or a combination of that and sitcom stuff, and, and you're going to lose some control. And, Absolutely. Uh, you, you might be poor here, but you, you're good. You've got control. Yeah, <laughs> right? you've got your integrity about yeah. your material and what you're going to do. I think that's very viable, especially because here, I mean, even with the situation as degraded as it got over time in terms of being able to work steadily. These three guys you you feature in your film have always made a living basically doing their comedy. And so that's very tempting, I think, to somebody who wants to say true their voices. Well, you know what? I might not be a huge success, but I can make a living here and I don't have to be at the post office, you know, behind the counter or in a grocery store as a cashier mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. supplementing my comedy income. I can literally make a living. And I think that is an important point. I mean, they write their material, they walk in, <coughs> and they, they deliver their stuff. Uh, Will, you know, he, he'll bash wherever he wants. And there's nobody vetting their material. And Johnny goes into the punchline and, and attacks, you know, Live Nation. Uh, yes. Larry yeah. goes into the punchline and says he's the, the main cause of vaginal dryness. I, it's, you know. a, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know about that last particular, that particular that last point. I don't know about that. A beautiful thing? I don't know. But, 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 but maybe but, for Larry. Yes, I don't know. I don't know. For but anybody, there's, something, but. there's something really wonderful about that range, right? And uh, I don't know. Um, that freedom. That artistic freedom. Uh, and, and of course, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. They didn't know that the that the scene was going to shrink the way it had when they made the decision to kind of right. forget about uh, 
going to LA and staying here. They didn't yeah. know. Very true. Yeah, so, true. Um, yeah, you never know where, where that's gone. So how did you guys decide on these three particular guys, Will, Johnny, and Larry? Because there were there are a lot of comics in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and they're they they're kind of every stripe yeah. of comedian. Yeah. Um, you know, what's just gonna Funny. be about Larry Brown? Uh, <laughs> 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 so Johnny had an idea. And, and I think Tim talked about this too, uh, a film, uh, some people have talked for years about it, a film called Deconstructing Larry Brown. <laughs> the, the, the film that figures out how, how his mind works. Wow. Um, I'd like to see that myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sequel. Yes, uh, but, it's a uh, sequel. You know, it was really, I, I think we struggled for a long time trying to figure out what the storyline was here. And but the guys, it wasn't a struggle. No, we, we kind we of kind of just for... went, oh, you know, Will is so articulate about comedy, about the scene, about San Francisco, of course. Mm -hmm. You've got to have Will. He's got a, a, a wonderful overview on the whole thing. And he's so talented. And then... And then uh, Johnny has that, um, that big presence. You know, and here was a guy who went to L.A., had development deals down there had uh, you know all this stuff going on and wasn't afraid to talk about the the business yeah. of comedy and the corporatization of yeah. comedy he will he'll go, go there and tell us all about it and that was great and he said right away look you know on the last go around I, I worked at this place in San Francisco and they brought in an out-of-town comic who made 25,000 and I did slightly shorter set same number of days and I made a couple hundred dollars and that kind of hit home. It, it, there's something wrong there. It's just, I know that the numbers bear that out. I know that that headliner comedian has a, a probably a television following. Sure. And, and of course, you want to pack the place. Um, but why can't we do better by artists? Because that's what these guys are. They are artists and they are um, extremely good and committed. And um, I, I just, I, I think... Um, and I don't know that we ever <laughs> answered this question, but uh, we, you know, I, I think we at least raise it. Is that yeah? There's some iniquity here. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, how difficult was it to sort of corral them into helping you define what the storyline was, or was it something you truly found sort of as you were piecing the movie together? I mean, did you go into it and say, once you figured out you were going to work on these three guys, you said, okay, we're going to follow their stories as the through lines for this movie? Or was it this, was it you sort of talked to them for a bit and then talked to some of the other comics that are featured in the movie, so other comics that aren't in the film that you managed to talk to, uh, and the story sort of cobbles itself together, right? just sort of trying to follow the chain of storytelling here? I think it's both, you know? I think Yeah, I think it's, yeah. Um, we knew we had... Act one is about the history of San Francisco comedy and, and what things were like in the heyday for these guys. And then we knew act two was about the challenges of today, mm -hmm. how, how, you know, how they struggle, and we, we needed to illustrate that. We needed to follow them around day to day, whatever their gigs were, good and bad, yeah. to kind of figure out the challenges today. We um we did interviews. We followed them around. We you know uh, we went. We had a really nice. This is just a very short scene in the film, but we went with Will and Debbie to their um, uh, storage container uh, out in you know out in the sticks, and they opened it up, and they had all this zoo paraphernalia from the Holy City Holy City Zoo, City Zoo yeah. stuff. 
Um, they used to own the, the zoo. Yes, they took it over at one point when it was failing, and they yeah. said somebody's got to save this this icon. Yeah. yeah. So it was a really hot, bright day, and the light was terrible, and we we're struggling in there. But it was kind of lovely that they were just pulling out all this stuff and saying this is all comedy history. And, yeah. And and then you felt that the power of that that club, and you know your your listeners all know the Holy City Zoo, but I don't know uh, that they do actually. I mean, it was a legendary place. I mean, I've got listeners all across the globe and probably never heard of the Holy City Zoo, but yeah. I mean, it really was a, this legendary place. I was lucky enough to perform on the stage a few times and just hang out there a lot. It had a little stage. It had a tiny stage and a tiny audience. There, it fit, I think, forty people all told. Um, and Robin would crash it. Robin uh, Williams was there a lot. A lot of people, Dana Carvey, everybody would go in there. It was it was the place. I forget who said this first, but it was a place where comics could go without and not be afraid to fail. Yeah, because that's what it really took to develop your act was you had to be able to fail to figure out how to do things right. And you say something wonderful in the doc. Uh, you know, and Mark Hershon says this Ooh, uh, uh, about how. <clears throat> at the zoo, comics could help each other because they were all hanging out there drinking beer. You could have a crowd of, I don't know, 20 comics yeah. hanging out there. And they would listen to each other's sets and they'd help each other with a punchline or a tag or something to, to you know, rework the joke. And how great that is. Yeah. You know, that, that's, um, that's lovely. And I, I don't think, when you have TV cameras and a more competitive atmosphere you don't you know that doesn't that. happen yet but no. because, I think because the the pool of comedy in San Francisco particularly at the time was so diverse a lot of people didn't feel like they were competition with each other because they did their acts were so different and yet because their acts were so different they would come up with these sort of you know brilliant ideas for a tag or a button to someone's joke because it wasn't even their kind of material I think normally if you're in a situation like that, if you're in L.A. In a, in a showcase club and everybody's trying to get TV attention, well, I'm going to save that tag and build a new bit out of it, you know, rather than give that to somebody. But it was a very sort of clubhousey kind of atmosphere. Well, you know, Robin said this when we interviewed him. Every now and then, every now and then we felt like we were all levitating in the room, you know. And, and I think yeah. <laughs> the kind of linkage, you know, we're all together. We're trying to get that best laugh. That's, that's, that's great a, that there's a place like that, great, or that there it? was. Yeah. One of the most gratifying things to me is when somebody says to me after seeing the movie, I would have loved to have gone to the zoo. Yeah. And people get that. Yeah, well, you yeah. know, I just, I just uh, uh, did a, an interview with W. Kamal Bell, who moved to San Francisco, I think, in 97. So he missed all that. And he said, yeah, when I got, by the time I got here, Places like the Holy City Zoo and the other cafe were really just the stuff of legend. I mean, I never got a chance to play the mm. zoo. It was all gone by the time I got here, and yet it was still this place that everybody talked about. Yeah, Debbie Durst says uh, <clears throat> people would come from Germany and say, oh, I want to see the zoo. <laughs> and it's like, wow. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think it was a lot of fun to, to be able to do some nostalgia about that, yeah. that place. Um, so you get... Um, you get these guys together, you start putting material together, and then you also assemble a pretty amazing uh, number of other interviews uh, along the way Mark in this Hershon. movie. Yes, Mark Hershon. Mark Hershon. Yes, uh, Lovely interview by Mark Hershon. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but what... Um, did you get to these other comedians based on your remembrance 
of these people being in the scene or was it sort of were you turned on to some of them by the main subjects in the movie saying hey you should talk to Rob Schneider or you should talk to this person or that person how, how did you go about finding these people to to get into the movie well we were at uh, the Throckmorton Theater on New Year's Day and Robin showed up and we told him what we were doing and his first response was you're not going to interview me now are you <laughs> or you're not going to shoot me now and, and we said no no of course not you know we, we didn't want to catch him off guard but we told him about the film and he said you know what I, I love these guys uh, of course I'll, I'll do something with you so I think he was the first of that series of yeah uh, right um, right Right. That's a good way to get other people to fall in line. Yeah. Know, Robin, well, we're, right talking, to Robin. we're talking to Robin. Oh, well, Robin's in a time. Well, sign me up. Yeah. Well, when we, when we interviewed Bobby Slayton, he didn't know that we'd already interviewed Robin. And he kind of, we, we dropped that halfway through the interview. And he was like, what? Robin's in this? I didn't know this was a big deal. I didn't dress up or anything. You know? <laughs> I mean, if I'd known Robin was in this, I would have been more professional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Bobby to... Slayton, of course, we remembered from a scene back then. Um, we were both huge fans of Dana's. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, just yeah, really loved Dana back then, and and we we felt like it made sense, or like it was important to get those iconic, well-known comedians and especially when they were pretty close to uh, our three main guys you yeah know? Um, and they could and, and it, you know turns out in the film Dana and, and Larry and you take off on a, on a road trip and that's right yeah. that's uh, that's great fun to, to see that but uh, it, and it, it's interesting to have people like Robin Williams and Dana Carvey and Paula Pounce and these people that were on the other end of the spectrum in terms of going out there and becoming someone in the classic sense of show business Mm -hmm. to come back and help tell the story, right? Because they're all sort of started together, more or less. I mean, Dana and Robin were pretty well on their way by the time Will and Larry and Johnny got into the scene. They were like a class ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they're still sort of in that same... Mm -hmm. The class was much more attenuated between, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, the mid-70s to early 80s. It was all kind kind of a lot of people held back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the class before they went out, you know, and then the, the class sort of sped up after, after about 85 things started to speed up because Hollywood started scooping people up was the thing. You know? right. So they, they'd come here, you know, first they'd come to San Francisco from another market because San Francisco had caught fire. And then Hollywood would either come up for the comedy competition or these guys would audition and get to the Montreal Festival. And all of a sudden these guys are getting scooped up by Hollywood. So the cycle's happening faster and faster and faster as you look at it. So it was interesting to have those, that contrast in the movie of these people like Robin and Dana talking about these same guys that were in their sort of the lower classmen. Right, right. And you know, how many different art forms or endeavors are there where you've got the folks that are the, the brilliant stars who are famous worldwide and the folks that are kind of struggling to, to hang in there they're all buddies they're all friends and they all yeah. hang out together all the time and have been to each other's uh, weddings and and uh, you know celebrated life together for the last few decades I, and we really had no sense of that when we started this project right right yeah, yeah. we didn't know that they were such a still a cohesive community mm-hmm. they get together all the time and you know um, that that uh, that's kind of startling in a way because uh, you know I yeah. think there is uh, a narrow difference between the folks that you know 
make it big. And now, Jeff Bolt, we didn't know back then, but Robin recommended him. Mm-hmm. Robin said, you know, we were talking, he, he, we were talking about uh, uh, comedians. Memorable who, acts. Memorable right? acts and, and comedians from the Bay Area. And he kind of went, Jeff Bolt, Jeff Bolt. Mm-hmm. So, so we checked him out on YouTube. You should check him out on YouTube, and uh, and we had to interview him. <laughs> he says he does this thing with a puppet. Oh, the yeah. puppet thing is, like, I would, I would, I would run into the room if he was at the punchline or at Cobb's. As soon as the puppet would come out, I go, I, I do not want to miss the puppet thing again. It's so funny. It was just for years. It would just crack. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen his puppet thing. It's so funny. He does the best awkward. He's too. yes, he's great at it, and yeah. just uh, you guys can listeners can look him up on YouTube. But this puppet thing is this, essentially it's this hand puppet, and most of the act he's he forgets he's got the puppet on his hand, so he's got these weird. He, he'll like pick his butt with the puppet, and then all of a sudden he <laughs> abruptly remembers the puppet, and he's got this funny high pitched voice <laughs> for the puppet that suddenly it's it is one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen so if you come across the YouTube where he's quitting smoking he just quit smoking that day just st- stick with it it's it's very funny right. he was a guest uh, I, I uh, mentioned to you guys he I had uh, co-hosted this live talk show last week with Bob Sarlat at the Brockhorn on a Saturday afternoon and Jeff Bolt was uh, one of our guests but he came on in character as a because it was Labor Day weekend, as an HR specialist <laughs> for, the, for this company, and again, he's just so, his his thing is awkwardness, and he was so very funny, uh, and just basically accused us both of not being fit to be employed by anybody because we were just slackers and just we didn't have our shit together, and it was just Jeff is so anyway. So you discovered Jeff Bolt because of yes, recommendation, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and. Um, Rebecca Irwin Spencer gave us some tapes. She used to she used to manage the Holy City Zoo, right? And she gave us some tapes, and they're very dark, and we can't use them. But there's some stuff in there of Jeff Bolt on stage. Yeah, the professor. <laughs> the professor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's just. And there's Kevin Meany. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doing, oh yeah, uh, there's some great stuff. January, just... February. <laughs> I wrote March, a new song. April. <laughs> you know the words. <laughs> I wrote the tune. <laughs> so yeah, there's really wonderful stuff there for the audio version. Okay, you both the, the yeah. podcast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, um, some great things. So, uh, so as you're beginning to get these disparate elements all kind of put together in, in some sort of semblance of, of form, you you give it a timeline, you give it some uh, perspective. You've got people talking about other people, and it's suddenly making sense. When do you start to really feel comfortable that you've got something that's going to hold together? I mean, is there is there a period where you're not sure this is going to work? Or do you kind of feel all the way through you've got something that's going to work? Still in there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping for good things at Mill Valley. But, <laughs> you know, it's we were t- just talking today about how biopics are tricky. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to tell a life story in in a, in a film, and we've taken on telling these three guys' life stories, uh, and and. The San Francisco scene. Which, yeah, that's a know, lot. That's yeah. a lot to take on. It's a load. Um, we, we, I remember there was a period of time where I felt like we got it. We got it. We got to start just 
putting it together and and you wanted to keep shooting yeah yeah I was yeah because we shooting. don't we don't you don't know you really don't know you you, you don't know and and uh well, did comics keep coming out of the woodwork suggested by other people and hearing about the project? Because, I mean, there were so many yeah. comedians between yeah. the early 80s all the way up until the into the early 90s that were just, I mean, you never hear about anymore. Who knows what's happened to some of them? But Yeah, we could have gone on talking to people forever, but we kind of realized we had to stop acquiring more material and begin putting together, building these stories and, and, and figuring out a way to tell it. Um, there were some scenes that came to life, you know, we didn't know that they were scenes until we looked at it. You know, there was a, I mean, there's a lovely scene where Johnny and, and his wife, Allison, he's decided he's going to have this uh, pop-up comedy show. It's all internet. And he blasts it out to everybody and then he goes to this place in Berkeley and he has a show on a Friday or Saturday night and uh, he can't seem to decide what the show is going to be. And we were with him two weeks before, we were with him a week before, we were with him the day before, we were with him the day of the show. And he still, you know, and his wife, Allison, is trying he, to get him couldn't. to commit. Yeah. And, and I didn't know, there's a scene of them sitting in their living room, hashing that out. And Allison's doing her best to just corral a, a set. And, and, <laughs> and Johnny just still, quite honestly, doesn't know. Right. what that set is going to be and stuff like that you never really know while you're shooting it the the power it's going to have but when sure. we look at that it's it's very intense some people our editor Eli Olson walked out of the room as she was editing she said I can't take this anymore really because it's just so you know it's just this collision of <laughs> you know it's almost like parenting you <laughs> maybe this isn't for you you know it's it's really quite a you know so so there were there was life that the editors injected into it that okay. I think we hadn't necessarily foreseen, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't know. You don't know until you put a scene together and you put music. And you can have a lovely scene. We've got a great scene of them going down to Santa Cruz that's not in the movie. They go to hmm. a Mexican restaurant to perform comedy. And there's Johnny's there and Johnny's wife and Will and uh, Mari Magaloni and Michael Bossier, and they all go down there to perform where a place where uh, enchiladas, enchiladas del mar is a dollar off that day. <laughs> and as Johnny puts it, I think they got billing just before enchiladas del mar. <laughs> I think it's below. <laughs> just, below. <laughs> just below. Just below enchiladas del mar. So. It's a small crowd. It's still light out. Um, it's a great scene. So why doesn't it play? Why isn't it in the film? Just... Didn't fit. Didn't fit. Uh, you know, when all is said and done, how, how much meandering can you do? And then, boy, um, you know, when I hear you talk about that scene, I feel like... Well, you want it back in the movie? <laughs> want it back in the movie. Um, Johnny was um, reeling from his father's death, mm. yeah, uh, yeah. who was a big inspiration to him, uh, which is another element that isn't in the movie. And, and it, we had uh, interviewed him about it, and we went out to a football field where he and his dad both played oh, wow. on the same high school football field and, and he kind of breaks down talking about it. I, I don't know how many people realize. Well, now everybody knows Johnny's a very emotional guy. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, how, how to get out there and, and do stand-up when you're really not feeling funny. 
Yeah. He he was doing that, and and um, in Santa Cruz it was right after, and and he's not connecting with the audience, and at one point he lies down on the stage, and and uh, uh, he's just not feeling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he starts asking. The so we audience. were gonna we were gonna put that in the movie, certainly, but hmm. because you know they they hike down to Santa Cruz, they drive an hour and a half, they yeah. they perform uh, for relatively little money uh will's there and and you know everybody you mentioned and then they do the show and they haul on back and i think the crowd might have been 50 people maybe but you know and and johnny was having a rough time it was you know just a tricky time for him personally will as always is out there just giving it you know everything he's got and and i think that's the thing about these guys you know there could be half a dozen people in the audience but they're you know, always giving giving it as much as they can, and and that's really a it's a lovely thing. Uh, really appreciate them for that. Well, let's talk about the excitement of the fact the film is done, and what what are your thoughts about what you're going to do with it? I mean, before you find out where it is going to show up, what what what's your idea for the movie as you're putting it together? Where are we going to put this thing? Where's it going to go? Well, uh, we have a, a, a strange distribution model. <laughs> we, An alternative alternative distribution, distribution model. model. It you know live standup has always been kind of a, a driving uh, force in in this project. And so one thing we want to do is begin a nationwide tour where we're going to show scenes from the film mm-hmm. and and live standup woven together into a ninety minute. Multimedia, what does Johnny call Afangulu. it? Afangulu. Yeah, Afangulu. The, the, the <laughs> transmedia, transgender Afangulu show. show. Nice. <laughs> That's a Johnny Steele name, <laughs> nickname. He's good at that. Um, um, so we want to do that. Um, and we, then would you then drive people to the website to buy the actual film at that point? or? You know, all that depends. We've been accepted to uh, another film festival that we can't uh, mention yet because they haven't released their their uh, um, information. But uh, it really depends on what sort of uh, attention we're able to, to get for it. Uh, we would love to have it uh, find a good home um, on, on a cable network or mm-hmm. in a streaming service. Uh, but we really do want to do this nationwide tour. And you could either buy the DVD on your way out or, uh, or maybe buy an outtakes reel and then get the DVD later. Some of that depends on whatever you know, deals we're able we to We also try. want to film the, the road tour as right, we go, right. you know, because these guys, they've been friends for 30 years now and they've got all sorts of ways of talking to each other. And, and uh, to film these very funny guys on the road, I think, would just be hysterical. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, it seems like you'd almost use that as a, a feeder system into a web a website for the for the live show or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, here mm-hmm. they were in Omaha last night. Right, right. right. You know, right. Which which helps spread this notion of this kind of you know this local comedy. Um, at each wherever we do it, we'd like to invite local comics to come in and, and become part of a little Holy City Zoo section where nice. you know, everybody. Yeah kind of kicks in and, and does does short sets. So. And we see what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Isn't that fun? Yeah. 
Um, you guys will be premiering at the Mill Valley Film Festival, right? Yes. We can tell yes. people that. And yeah, are absolutely. You, are you allowed to talk about when that's going to happen now in terms of dates yes. and times? And yes. Things? We are, right? I yeah. do believe we are. Yeah. Yeah. October 4th. Yes. October 4th. At 5 p.m. is our world premiere. October 4th at the Sequoia in Mill Valley. Beautiful downtown Mill Valley. It's going to be wonderful. And then... Are we allowed to say... <laughs> it's gonna be at least another yeah. week before this can be released. Oh, we're anyway, fine. So. We're yeah. fine. Yeah. And and uh, then after that, at eight o'clock, we're going to be down the street or up the street at the Throckmorton Theater, doing the three still standing live show. Three still standing on stage. Three still standing on stage. Who came up with that? I love it. Uh, well, the uh, folks at Mill Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Three still standing on stage. I think I did actually. Did you, did you really? I think I did. Oh, you know what? I think oh, we did. we sent them a list and they chose that. I think that. I, yeah, yeah, I that's right. Yeah. You did. You you came up with it. Yeah, you yeah. named it. I did. You did. I named it. I, I named the live show. That's so funny. Yes. yes. Where are your residuals? <laughs> he's, he's the he's the naming guy. Uh, well, that's gonna be yeah, great. Do your I'm, listeners know that you named the BlackBerry or they part do. of naming oh, the I talk about this. They know. The oh, yeah, yeah I talk it. about it all the time. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. They're sick of it. Uh -huh. They go, why'd you name your show Suckatash? We can't even spell it. <laughs> but uh, this is very exciting. So, uh, And there's uh, there's actually going to be, I think, two other showings at the Mill Valley Film Festival as well, right? Yes. Which uh, is October fantastic. 8th and 10th. October 8th at 1.30 p.m. and October 10th at 2.15 that's good. That's great. It's yeah. very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, as you as you've teased, there's uh, more in the offing, which is fantastic in terms of other festivals and other places. This will be popping up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The live show people can watch out for. Yeah. Yeah. We want to. You know, we're talking to theaters about doing the live show uh, in in California. Okay. At, at the tail end of 2014, and into 2015, and then thereafter taking it. Uh, as far as we can take it, I mean, you we'll know, officially launch the tour in probably end of January 2015. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You know, this would be great as a. I'll probably just cut this out because now we're just spitballing at this point. But we'll do a wrap up in a second. But one of those fathom event things where they do like a one night only in a theater, and they'll do. It, they've done it like with the. Oh, the, I've seen the, that. The I've New York Met will do like an opera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you can go on a Thursday night at like you know. 300 theaters around the country in one night. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So this That's seems like something would be cool. great for this. And I've seen comedy shows that have done that. Yeah. Uh, I think Glenn Beck did one where it was it was him doing comedy, essentially. Wow. And, and they, they've night. done soccer like that, yeah. too, right? They, they do these fathom events. Yeah. Right. So that would, be kinda, that would be interesting to do something like It'd a, the a grand like the finale. show. Yeah. 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 yeah, and and we love the idea of getting you know these guys out on the road. They're just very funny people, and I think the road always offers up some quirky. Oh, situations, the issues right? of of, of traveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how long from package to plate did it take you guys to put this project together? Do you think from the first time you conceived of it? Conceived. It's conceived. been it's been about three years. Yeah. You say? From. That's, Conception and working slowly for the first year in between other projects and then very gradually sifting down to where I think the last 18 months it's really just been this. Yeah. 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 So 
And so what, what happens after this project is done? Have you been giving it any thought? Do you have uh, other things in mind? Or is it all sort of a gestation period now where you go, what's going to take our attention next? You know, uh, financially it can't be. <laughs> <laughs> because this one's mean, been a can't, tough... can't sit back on your laurels? Yeah, and... bring in those residuals. Wait, wait, wait for that docu- sweet documentary money to come in. Oh, that doc money. Those doc dollars are big. Um, We've got a number of ideas, and, and some of them are radically different, and some of them are, are you know, flowing in the vein of, of comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, as always, it's a combination of how we're feeling and what doors open up um, as, as, we, as we head to the end of this. Yeah, one thing is we still have a ways to go with this project. I mean, unlike most films where you're, you've, you're done editing, you're, you're kind of done. Right. This one... We're taking out on the road. We've got the road show, and then and then we're filming that. So we're repurposing yeah. it. So it's kind of like it's three projects in one, where we've got these three different things going on. And I think we're going to be devoted to to comedy for a little while. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so if people want to find out more about um, where it's showing and what's going on with it, they can go to the website, which is threestillstanding.com, and that's the numeral. Three. The numeral three. Stillstanding.com. Yeah, we have a calendar page there which lists uh, everything that's going on. Including the guys' gigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they should, uh, listeners should also like your Facebook page. Oh, please do. Three Still Standing on Facebook. We would love that. Um, we would love it if you visit us on Facebook, Three Still Standing, and, and like our page. Um, and follow them on Twitter at Three Still Stand, at Three Still Stand, because some asshole took Three Still Stand. Somebody's just sitting on yeah. Three Still Stand. Wherever you are out there, <laughs> give it back. Give it up. Come on. Give man. it up. We'll give you five dollars. <laughs> give you five bucks right now. So three at three still stand. Three okay, three dollars. Um, and we're starting a Kickstarter um, because we uh, haven't finished paying for finishing the movie. Um, ah. And we have some uh, music and footage licensing and and um, uh, prepping the the road show. So we're we're actually gonna. A lot of stuff for people to keep track of. I don't know who can keep track of all no, that. But we, we can't. You know. but, but we just have a little bit of finishing to do with the movie, with paying it off. And, and so that's what this Kickstarter covers. And then it, it launches us onto our tour so that we can take it across the country and to your hometown. Excellent. And you've gone from working with sharks to becoming comedy pr- promoters. Comedy wranglers. Yeah. <laughs> Wrangling sharks. Are, I think comics are harder, too. Oh, yeah, well, definitely. And they, and they bite deeper. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you know, it's searing and it lasts a lifetime. <laughs> well, Robert, Donna, thanks so much for, for talking to us. And oh. uh, best of luck with, uh, with the movie and uh, the rest of your projects moving ahead. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on Succotash. Thank you. Thanks. I can't wait. The movie kicks off this Saturday, and we have the live show, too. Three Still Standing, live on stage, right afterwards. Find out more info about the movie at 3, that's the numeral 3, stillstanding.com, or at the Mill Valley Film Festival website, mvff.com. Here he is, just in time to wrap things up. It's Will Durst, one of the stars of Three Still Standing and the purveyor of a segment we like to call our Burst O'Durst. This week, he's on about Obama's insistence on referring to ISIS as ISIL, and maybe a new name we can use together. Hey guys, 
Will Durst here to say congratulations to President Barack Obama. Wonderful speech in front of the United Nations General Assembly rallying the world against terrorism. Proves the guy can be plenty tough when the time calls for it. Matter of fact, he's got to be the most belligerent of all Nobel Peace Prize winners ever. Good to see the great facilitator finally get to facilitate. After almost six years, that's got to feel good. Suck sand, Mitch McConnell. One minor quibble. He keeps calling the band of roving terrorists ISIL. From the beginning, we were told they answered to the Islamic State of Syria, or ISIS. But recently, a plethora of monikers have popped up. ISIS, ISIL, the Islamic State, and the cretinous toed butt-wiped lizard sticks. That's my favorite. The Islamic State seems to be the worst choice, since they are neither very Islamic nor a state. A group of UK Muslims has asked the Brits to call them the un-Islamic state, and John Kerry calls them the enemy of Islam. But those are as likely to catch on as calling dynamite pixie dust. The French foreign minister calls them Daesh, which is an anagram of their Arabic name. He goes so far as to call them the Daesh cutthroats, which the terrorist organization says is disrespectful. Ain't that always the way? People who famously cutthroats hate being called cutthroats. Well, mister, maybe you should have thought of that before getting kicked out of Al-Qaeda for being too radical. Daesh sounds like douche, so it would be fitting to call them Daesh bags. Or since they're exponential factor fundamentalists, might be fun to refer to them with a pork component. The sausage heads, or awful offals, or bacon boobs. Still like cretinous toad butt-wipe lizard sticks, but that's probably not going to catch on either. For Suckatash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. Will Durst hangs out at his home site, willdurst.com, and also tweets as at Will Durst on Twitter. Holy hot cow, stick a fork in Epi 96 because it's done. We had clips, we had chat, we had pants. Coming up next episode will be more clips and one or two of the mini views or mini interviews I had with some of the podcasters at the third annual Los Angeles Podcast Festival. If you'd like to get in touch with me, shoot me an email at mark, M-A-R-C, at succotashshow.com or listen for the number to the Succotash hotline when our friendly booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, says goodbye in just a moment. You can find Suckatash on iTunes, Stitcher, CWERadio.com, that's Clutch and Wiggle Entertainment Radio, where we replay all the time, and sometimes on SoundCloud. I've been having some upload woes there. Uh, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and as always, thanks for passing the Suckatash. You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com. Or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non-toll-free call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please 
past the succotash. Goodbye.